Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Weimer Schneiders. Weimer is the curator and editor of Eat Your Greens, a fact-based thinking to improve your brand's health. It's a book that was put out last year, I believe, by Weimer and the APG in the UK. It's a fascinating read. It made my uh, best books of 2019. Probably will be on the list again for 2020, frankly, because it's chock full of insightful thinkers, and many of which are challenging historical understanding of marketing. Many of the folks have been on the show before, people like Mark Ritson, Byron Sharp, Richard Schotten, Bob Hoffman, Tom Goodwin, Mark Barden, and uh, today we're going to talk to the guy that put it all together. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Weimer. Weimer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here, Alan. Well, uh, I should say congrats on the publishing of Eat Your Greens, Fact-Based Thinking to Improve Your Brand's Health. I know you published it in 2018, but it's it's been on my my list. It's been on my bookshelf. It's one I pull down and read another another chapter here and there. So I've really enjoyed it. So congratulations. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Uh, and I'm glad you're enjoying the book. So uh, that's great. It is meaty. It's meaty. And we'll get into it <laughs> today. But I'm curious, why did you feel the need to build the book? And it is a compilation of other authors and yourself. So just what was the impetus? Well, 
I don't know. I, I guess I very specifically wanted to offer readers perspectives from from multiple people. Very specifically, a certain type of group, sort of type of group of people. I mean, like-minded people, if you if you will. They don't. I don't think they will, will all agree uh, if you read read through the book. But I think they do. There is sort of one sort of unifying theme or thing, which is that uh, most of these people like to base their arguments on facts. They they're interested in science and what it has to offer, and they write about it. Most of them are actually fairly well known. Um, there's there's already so many books out there from very interesting people. So the people, quite a few of those people in the book as well, obviously. But I thought it was much more interesting for readers to be able to pick up a book where you could take in various views, short articles, because you know many people just have at least they say they have a little time to read books. So I wanted to create something that they could easily dip in, you know, and just pick a. I say 15 minutes or so to read up on on a certain topic, which well, they wouldn't you know, necessarily know everything about a particular topic, but the, you know, they would probably be offered a few interesting facts and probably also, probably also be challenged to find out a bit more about about it if they if it sort of managed to uh, tickle them enough. Um, so hopefully at the end of the if you finish reading the book, the idea was to have to give people the idea of wow, there's actually this large group of people that actually have a lot of sensible, interesting well-argumented things to share and uh, uh, and that might actually be really uh, of use, of value uh, for me as a marketing uh, profession and a professional. So it's, it's a bit like visiting a museum and, uh, you know, where there's just a selection of painters from a certain period or whatever or, or a style and you just, you know, you can just uh, indulge on that and exit a richer person. Like I said, I've enjoyed it. And there's a lot of authors in the book and many more that I would love to have on the show, but many have already been on the show. People like Mark Ritson, Byron Sharp, Richard Shotton, Bob Hoffman, Tom Goodwin, and Mark Barden. And so when I, it was Mark, actually, Mark Barden, when we did a podcast episode together, he was talking about his chapter in the upcoming book at that point in time. And um, so he kind of turned me on to it. And I was like, wow, this, there's so many good people in here and many more that I would love to interview at some point. How did you, I guess, one, where did you find them? And how did you, I'm sure you kind of handpicked people. At some point, yeah. Well, you know, finding them was in a way not really hard, as uh, for most of these people, as they were uh, these people. Many of these authors, especially the ones you just mentioned, are you know are people that you know publish books or publish regularly in, in, in blogs or, or other pla- and or other places. Speak very frequently, so it wasn't th- those people weren't actually really hard to find. But to be honest, uh, many of these people, um, I was actually already sort of following on social media and and with a. With, uh, with a large part of them as actually already sort of corresponding for a while, and then sort of when that when the idea grew to really try and get uh, an interesting group of people together, uh, yeah, just read up on on interesting people. You only ask other people as well. So is, to, is there anybody else you think I should consider and uh, try to include in the book? So I must say for this first edition, where, where I indeed sort of handpicked a few people that that I thought were interesting and and were also different and from each other sufficiently so you get a get a rich picture from people from all sorts of corners of the industry so not just advertising necessarily my hope was that that would would help raise awareness and interest for for the book uh and um to be honest my hope was actually to eke out new talent as well for maybe subsequent editions to to also use it as a as a mechanism to get other people to write express themselves more but also just maybe uh, find new interesting people that aren't so easy to find uh, but we're all 
sort of adhere or fit the bill, which was really the real main purpose of the book to uh, to counter some of the nonsense and hype in the industry. And uh, I just picked picked the very sort of obvious suspects or the people are very vocal. But uh, the idea was also just really show readers that you now it's not just a few academics, maybe. First and foremost, someone like Byron Sharp might come to mind. There's just a truckload of practitioners who are also reading up on this this stuff and trying to share sensible ideas and trying to, you know, stimulate debate. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, it's a it's a quite the group. So congratulations on it. I'm curious. I mean, there's so much in here. Do you have a favorite chapter? Yeah, but I won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah. picking your favorite kid, right? Well, yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm sorry. Well, I, I, to be honest, I, I've said this uh, somewhere else. Is, to be honest, I'm, I might have my a few chapters that I, that I like more than, than others, although I, I really do like uh, all the chapters. But also, it's really hard to sort of compare them because some of them are so very different in their style and setup. So it's just a, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride that you know, I think you're in. You just need to take it all in and enjoy it. Right. I'm curious, um, for personal reasons, who should I have on the podcast next, do you think? Hmm. Well, yes, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, so you see you know, your podcast called Marketing Today. Um, and one, one of the people in the book that I think would be interesting, although I'm, I'm not really sure whether he's willing uh, to talk much about marketing, uh, would, be, would be Doc Searles. I think he doesn't consider himself to be part of the marketing community, but I do think he has some very sensible things to say about it. So by means of being on the show and <laughs> saying it out uh, loud, I'm, I'm, I'm try- I hope he'll... he'll uh, what do you say? Take on the the glove or the gauntlet or whatever you use. You know, in, in Dutch, you would say you pick up the glove <laughs> and you do it. So I hope he'll he'll do so. But uh, he's critical. But you know, I think that's sort of exactly what we need to be more in marketing. So uh, try and get him. If you want some other suggestions, it's fine. But uh, try him first. I'd say. Okay. Yeah, I will. I will definitely try him. Well, as we're talking about the book, you've contributed two chapters actually yourself. And one, I think one was it with a co-author. I thought maybe we could take on the subjects of each of those chapters, go a little deeper, if you don't mind. Yeah, great. Perfect. And the, the first chapter of the book is yours. And it sets it kind of sets the tone, in my opinion, for breaking our collective hold on what I call untruths in marketing management. And wondered if you could describe what you call in the chapter, the forgotten majority for listeners. Yeah. So when I asked everybody to to provide me with their with their chapters or contributions, essays, to be honest, I, I took a bit of a risk because, because my briefing was very wide open. I said, you can write about anything as long as you back it up with facts, with the exception of maybe Tom Fishburne, who just needed to draw, <laughs> obviously. But so the risk was obviously that as these many of these people are to a certain extent like-minded, I would actually get back a lot of sort of similar papers on a similar topic, which to be honest, and just ended up not being the case. But what was, well, at least in my view, quite striking is that very few papers discussed or addressed or talked about what I consider sort of one of the most fundamental and well-established things when it comes to consumer choice. Um, it's, it's something I also concern myself quite a bit in my work with clients. And it's it's a very f- simple, but very fundamental pattern in how we in the way we buy how we make choices as consumers and uh, it's, it's statistical and technical name is the negative binomial distribution when it comes to the shape of your customer base and that very fundamental pattern which was discovered by andrew ehrenberg in the mid-50s uh, the, the previous century and millennium they actually are uh, just tells you something very very profound very simple that there's a lot of people who do a little and there's a few who do a lot 
And um, we just keep on seeing that over and over again. If you test it to this date, you know, if you would look into a data set and you would look at a customer base and try to create and crunch the numbers and, and find find out what your customer base would look like, uh, you would find this this shape, this pattern. It's, it's just very, very robust, fundamental. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're in services or uh, in consumer packaged goods or uh, I don't know. Uh, or anything that lies between. This is what consumer choice looks like. And the implications are very, very profound because you know you need to sort of come to terms to, with the fact that there's just an enormous amount of people, a sea of people that just, just don't buy you very often. You don't, don't spend very much on you. Uh, but those people are very easy to, to neglect because initially, I think in, in how brands grow, this pattern is very well described as well as it was in the pre- and preceding decades. But the I think, and this is, Credit needs to go to Charles Graham, with whom, whom I wrote the uh, chapter. He conducted two long-term loyalty studies, so he could he actually also demonstrated the degree to which you you are dependent on these very let's say light buyers, people who do a little over the course of multiple years. And it was actually more it was even more I say that the extent to which you are dependent on these light buyers was actually more extreme than it, than anything that was also, for example, written in How Brands Grow, which looked in many cases at let's say buying over the course of a year. So just to give you a bit of, just a simple example, is that what Charles found, which is also described in the book, is that it's very normal for about 40% of your customers to only buy you once in five years. So you know, just just think about that in terms of tenure. You know, your, your average CMO tenure is about four years. So for, for, for a CMO who, after four years, 40% of his customers would have bought a product just once. Now, it's, it's just mind-boggling what that, what that means to, to, in, to a certain extent, it just means the implications. Sorry, are just very profound in the sense that you. So there's just you know sort of a, wow. That means that we really need to work hard in reminding very large groups of people that we're here, but we shouldn't expect them to buy anytime soon. So what do you think that means for distribution? What do you think that means for consistency, for your ability to be recognised? If you change your logo in the period of four years, which is actually not a you know, not a weird thing to happen. You could very well sort of confuse a lot of people who, who thought you were you were the one with the red cap, you know, something like that. So, and what about discounting? What about discounting your products if the majority of people, and it's really the majority of people, just only buy you, uh, I'd say once in two years, maybe, maybe once a year. So that, that one purchase that you realize, let's say, at a discount 20%. So what are you doing? So it makes you rethink all of those all those things, but it's it's it all goes back to that very fundamental pattern. And there's two other patterns that flow from it. But let's stick with this just this thing for for the sake of time, essentially. But it wasn't really discussed in in any of the, the chapters. I think there's maybe one or two people that reference it slightly. So I got all these chapters back, and and I was expecting to maybe fill in the gaps a wee bit, depending on what I got back. So I only sort of decided to write about the NBD, this pattern. I typically when I talk about it, refer to it to uh, as a banana because it's sort of the shape of the distribution resembles a banana. So, so it's hopefully it's that makes it a bit more memorable. So I decided to to call Charles, who, who I already knew, I knew of his work, and and said, well, you know, I think there's a gap. This is a book about fact-based thinking. It just needs to be in there. So how about 
you and I pick up a pen and start writing. And uh, I'm very happy and glad that he uh, agreed to do so. Because it's, it's, I don't know. I think it's not so much because I wrote the chapter at all, and uh, absolutely not. But it's it's just a very important finding that more marketers need to be aware of and, and think about. Right, right. Well, and I think what struck me is that distribution, like you said, the banana in particular is a, is a is a great visual, that downward slope, if you will, that. No matter which brand you look at, whatever category, you still see that same pattern. And ultimately, my takeaway was there's two types of brands, big brands and smaller brands, or big bananas and smaller bananas. Small bananas. <laughs> well, exactly, Alan. You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter. There's It blows up, frankly, this notion that you can be a small brand with lots of loyal shoppers. Everyone has loyalty. And whether you're a big brand means you have more loyalty, frankly. And that really, so that if you think about the way towards growth, it's the focus on those light users. So anyway, it, it kind of shook me. I mean, I I'd read... I'd hit on it in other material that I've read, but I hadn't seen it depicted as clearly as you laid it out. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I think, uh, well, we might get into that later, but I sort of, I do think that there is nothing wrong with repeating some very basic fundamental truths and, uh, but challenging yourself to find interesting, engaging ways of making those things more memorable, more easy to understand. And, uh, and you know, I consider it a great compliment that it, help the way that we described it uh, help you know sort of make it more memorable stick better and you're, you're absolutely right i think what still surprises me it's not that there haven't been enough people sort of writing about this and or it, there's not enough in the academic literature or even just in uh say the books like how brands grow or, but there are there isn't enough reference to these things but it's it's just, I think, to a certain extent, so counterintuitive to a lot of the other things that go on in marketing that people tend to sort of forget about it and are lured into doing some really weird things. Accenture, not very long ago, published a study where they focused on the retail category where they said, well, you know, if you look at retailers, customers, there's quite a bit of them, quite a lot of them aren't very, very profitable. So, so, they, so they divided their you know, customers up into 10 separate groups. And they said, well, the largest group isn't really profitable. And there's this small group of customers that are really extremely profitable. They are 50 times more profitable than the least profitable ones. And I'm reading up on that. And if you just think about NBD, Banana, you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, there's a, there's a lot of people that don't spend much. And yeah, there's a very small group of people who do. But the interesting bit was that, so that paper went on. And so it said, of course, because that's what Accenture does and sells. They tell retailers that they need to be obsessed with this very profitable group of customers. And by means of more data and technology, they sh they're able to find these people. And, but they're essentially just saying, well, you need to increase that a smaller group on the right-hand side of the distribution. So you need to be smart about finding those people and you need to increase the number of those people. And they just seem to completely forget that, you know, just think back about the shape and the shape always saying the same, that one, that very small group of people will probably not become much larger if you manage to grow your brand. And if you actually do so, there's going to be hordes of people on the left uh, that you will have, you will have need to have added to your base. So it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of surprising, but the, I think there's some very interesting things going on in the industry that just very work very hard against this finding, and uh, that's it's tough to beat. Right. Well, and it, to your point, I mean, there's so much out there that's supporting this chase, if you will, to 
chase down your most profitable customers almost at the expense, well, definitely at the expense of growing your base of customers. And there was a another notion, I guess, it actually comes from accounting, frankly, I'm remembering in my studies that this notion of a death spiral where I want to say it's related to activity-based costing, right? So you focus on variable costs um, and forget about, I may have this wrong, but you forget about the fixed cost portion. And so you continue to, to make things. And in essence, if you forget about the fixed cost of your base at some level, and you're just focusing on higher and higher marginal profit, you could find yourself- Yeah, you will kill yourself. Yeah, you will kill yourself, right? Because you need the volume to make it pay for the fixed costs. And it seems very similar in that regard. And I don't know, I mean, to your point, there's a lot of incentives to focus on the most profitable if you're a service provider and that's what you focus on. And the tools and, and methods that you do, that's how you make your money. But it seems, frankly, irresponsible in some, in some respects. Well, I think the data and technology have just exasperated the whole focus on the short term, which is I'm definitely not the first and not the only one who's addressing this thing. And, and it's not even in marketing that as short term as termism and its problems are, are being noted. You know, I think it's Peter Drucker who also said, you know, just simply adding up the short terms doesn't, you know, uh, you, you don't end up with a long, long-term result. So, you know, long-term results isn't just simply the adding up of the short terms. And it's just the data and technology have made us to focus, I suppose, too much on one thing that needs to be done. And um, the, the problem, obviously, a lot of what we can actually measure, there's a lot of things that we can very easily measure, the things that, you know, um, and those tend to be the things and or the people, so to speak, on the on the right side of, of that distribution we talked about, people that engage quite frequently, the people that we actually see quite often in our shops, the people that shop frequently. You know, it's very easy. It's very nice because we, we see those people. We see them do stuff. We see them sell or buy things, you know, engage with us. So it's it's all very easy to measure. And it's actually also quite more easy to sell to those people because they are, let's say, there's more they because they're more in the market, so to speak. They just they just simply buy more often, so it's so their their propensity to buy will be higher. But it, that's fine to a certain extent. What about the people on so on the left side of that distribution? What about the people you you actually don't see very often that that don't engage that just buy once in five years? Uh, it's very hard to get information from those people. It's let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most frequently occurring number of items in a supermarket basket? I have no idea. <laughs> I would think a lot, but I feel like that's probably wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I'm, so I'm asking you about the most frequently occurring number. So just to give you a bit of a hint. So should measure. So the answer is, if you think back about the distribution, so won. What, what's yeah, the smallest right, number? Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But it's so counterintuitive because you and I probably sort of envision mums and dads walking around with trolleys and or people walking around with baskets. And because that's it's easier to see and spot those people, it's really hard to see people that just go walk in, walk out. It's just to give you an example of how it sort of manifests, how the measurement actually sort of works against us. But it is perverse incentives as well. It's just... If you're a young brand manager and you live in an expensive city, you need to commute for an hour and a half. What's sort of the first? Well, what's one of the first things on your mind if you think about your career? It's about well, if I, if I just make it out of this one and, and try to become a marketing director within the next three years, you know, I'll, I'll probably be able to buy a, a you know, nicer bit of property closer to where I work. So it's it's also things that marketers, you know, have a, to a certain extent, can hardly control. It's just um, can you blame people for trying to? 
just make sure that they, you know, they get a good result this year. <laughs> just sell a lot of sell a lot of volume this quarter, and it's not very difficult to sell a lot of volume. You just put the price down, essentially, as an example. Now, this is what keeps CEOs up at night, essentially. It's a constant balance between price and volume. So it's not really hard to sell a lot of stuff. You just, you know, you just decrease your price. I'm, I'm being a bit, you know, <laughs> rude here, but so, so simplifying it a bit. But you, you, so that all leads into activities and tactics, and are again, it's again, you're focusing, you're working, let's say, too much. Let's say the right side of that distribution, the few people that buy a lot. Because those people will be interested in deals and, uh, you know, they'll notice your advertising and all those things. But it's how do you build memory structures over a long period of time? And how do you actually measure the effect of advertising that you saw 10 years ago? You know, if that would increase your chances of buying from one in 10,000 to one in 8,000, how am I going to measure that? So we don't. So we're focusing on things that are easy to measure and they tend to be the things that are associated with uh, short-term behaviors. Well, let's shift topics a little bit because I want to talk about the second chapter as well and that you write and you, you take on purpose, so to speak, and unique selling propositions, which is purpose is, gosh, it's like, it's probably like starting to become, I think, one of the most hated words in marketing, at least for me. But unique selling propositions, I was I was like, no, don't take that away from me. So tell me, you write this, this there's a sentence that I think kind of sums up the the key idea, but I would love for you to explain it, is you say purpose works against a large body of evidence on how the brain works by reducing cognitive effort. That's ultimately the essence of branding. And so I'd love for you to describe that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more than happy to do so. Um, yeah. I think so. The, the, when I wrote the chapter, it actually combines a, a couple of things. But at the time when I wrote it, I'm not really sure. But I think there's a difference between Europe and, and the US uh, with respect to the the amount of people. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about purpose, but, but it could very well be changing in terms of that it's, in, it's increasing in the U.S. But there was a few people in the U.S. were telling me, oh, people hardly talk about purpose here, uh, over here. Changing, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been, well, maybe I'm just more attentive to it, but um, uh, as you say, it's sort of a, I'm having a hard time reading the word because it's just, it's just all sorts of, uh, I think it's just an enormous distraction for marketers. And because now this, you now getting into the chapter, it's, it assumes that, or at least that's my view, is that it assumes that people think about brands quite a bit because you do need to sort of think about the thing that's been communicated and then linking it to a brand. So that its purpose, to a certain extent, assumes people will give quite a bit of sort of conscious thought about 
what's being communicated and, and to what extent they actually agree with that and whether they actually indeed like the brand more because they're saving saving the world in one one shape or way, shape or form. So it just it just assumes that we actually spend quite a bit of time thinking about brands. And and the whole idea behind the USPs is very similar. Ross Rees wrote about it at the time, but you know, his, his main point was obviously that you need to be you need to give people a reason to buy your brand. Again, that assumes that people think about brands quite a bit. And, uh, and as I described in the chapter, you, know, you could argue whether Reeves really believed that or whether it was just really in response to, to a book that was written previously by Vance Packard, you know, The Hidden Persuaders, which claimed the exact opposite, saying, well, people don't think about brands. We're, we're able to influence people's buying behavior or choices and preferences by means of you know, hidden signals or subliminal advertising, something Heath uh, also describes in his, his book. And whether that's true or not, is, I, I suppose, is a different discussion uh, on another topic. But those two people were actually just competing against each other. <laughs> so Reeves just needed to have a different story so people would choose him over others, which is very true to his to his, his notion, I would say. But, but he didn't really back that up with, with any real proper evidence. But, you know, it just sounded logical. But again, consciously thinking about brands and, and what they stand for, just if you... If you just think about how many ads we see, some people claim that we see 5,000 ads a day, but let's just be really conservative and say that that 1,000 that 1, ads is maybe closer to the mark. In most cases, you probably need about five seconds to process the thing. TV advertising obviously takes longer, but it, and let's say on average, you, you, you'd spend 10 seconds on every brand that you'd see. Uh, that would be 10,000 seconds. That's three, three hours in itself. Obviously, nobody thinks about advertising that long unless you're working in the industry. But that would need to happen every day then, essentially. And obviously, that that hardly ever happens with with most purchasing. People are perfectly able to navigate the billboards and uh, the supermarket uh, ales, as we call it, and uh, and make choices that are satisfactory because they are navigating those places in the sense that they want to pay attention to those to brands and what they're communicating or not, uh, because they're using very simple cues. And this is the large, I think, the large body of evidence, if you think about our brain or just evolution, is that for survival, it's, very, it's vital that you conserve energy. And that's essentially still the way, how, the way we operate. It's why are so many things that make our life more easy so interesting? Because in many cases, they, if you really think about it, they help us conserve energy. So everything that just requires less energy, so one-click buying or you know, staircases, electrical staircases or mechanical staircases, it's, you can think about all sorts of things. Everything that makes our life easier is very interesting to us because you know fundamentally that just helps us conserve energy. So it's the same with cognitive effort, which is to a large part is what is very demanding in terms of energy consumption you know a lot of a lot of our energy is um, spent on thinking so you know our brain consumes a lot of energy so everything that we can do to reduce that that's we as people uh, humans just love so so this is why you pick the yellow one or whatever you know, just how do you you know, i'm assuming you went on been on holiday but i just actually quite recently came back from italy and if you go into a supermarket and my wife was just telling me could you get us some mozzarella or whatever i think cheese and mozzarella something like that doesn't really matter and you just walk through the aisles and you're just you're just trying to find that stuff in the first place and then you're looking at you're trying to 
to d- decide for yourself whether you know, any of these brands that you see is actually one that you want to pick up or actually if it's a bit of a dodgy one. And you make all it's I just walk out of those places with a headache because I'm just noticing how much I'm actually thinking about my choices, which is obviously in my normal environment just never happens because I just I just grab the blue one and I'm fine. I know it's okay. So and that's that's sort of my point. That's what I what I call the essence of branding. This is why why consistency, recognition, relevance are so uh, so incredibly important uh, to, to brands because we actually don't think uh, that much about brands. And sh- sure enough, you know there are a few brands or instances that you will think about a brand. You know, maybe when you decide to buy a new car, uh, although you will probably already have a sort of a Pre, you have already in your mind have made a sort of a pre-selection of the brands you know, from which you will choose. You won't choose. You won't think about all the hundreds of car brands that are out there, for example. So again, you're already sort of boiling it down to things that are familiar or and or that you trust. But again, it's just really reducing cognitive effort. That's really what drives a lot of uh, drives a lot what we do. Right? Well, in your point about buy the red one or the the orange one, I was doing some market research. In a um, crazy category, toilet paper or toilet tissue. And uh, one, well, I have to, I can't leave this stat without saying it. In the US and Canada was where this research was being done and had this weird stat that 98% of people use toilet paper. And I always wondered about the other 2%. (laughs) But don't think about that too hard, listener, please. But if you are out there in the 2%, I hope you're using something. But the point of this is that when they would describe their favorite brand, you know, they, they would rarely use the name of the brand. They would say, I buy the one with the bears on it or I buy the one with the ridges. And it was fascinating because to your point, those things have those brands have been reduced down to the package packaging. And if they ever change the packaging and remove the bears, people would not know which brand they were buying. <laughs> and they'd be confused, probably asking the store, where's the brand with the bears on it? And, uh, and so it's, it's fascinating to how the brain works versus how us as marketers would like it to work, I guess. Yeah, and, and there's some really interesting research uh, from different several people. But so some people might, you know, some of the listeners might say, "Well, yeah, that's that's all fine in, in in consumer packaged goods. You know, the people you know hardly give those pa- pa- purchases a lot of thought." But you know, there's there's some good research that demonstrates. Uh, I think it's actually Byron Sharp, maybe together with someone else, who actually looked at. So the number of brands that people would consider in financial services, so you, which you would assume to be typically is known as a high involvement category, but actually what they found was that people actually, on average, sort of consider one or two brands, and if it was two, it was very likely one of those two was the one that they were banking with or you know, being insured with already, and then they just had one other that they sort of just considered you know, choosing. Uh, and they also looked at the amount of orientation people would conduct. Is that it? Yeah. So. Uh, so how much search would there be with people with that increase for uh, high involvement categories? Which, But they found that wasn't the case. Uh, and there's a Dutch researcher, Ab- Abdijksterhuis, who's not a marketer, but he did some really interesting research ways to show that when people need to decide and there's a lot of variables that they need to take into account to make their decision, that's actually when people will more rely on their heuristics and their shortcuts, their mental shortcuts. So people would actually ponder more, think about, think more and compare more when they were buying, let's say, um, a very, very mundane products versus, let's say, a house, buying a house. So it's, it's, it's intriguing to see how, um, how uh, that people 
very quickly sort of um, rely on their on their intuition and or uh, their, 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 some of the, the shortcuts that they make, which are all very often. Is that a big one? A big? Is the big banana? <laughs> Do I know it? <laughs> Do other people use it? Oh yeah. Oh, that then is probably good. Something like that. Well, um, I'd love to know. We've been talking about the book, but it's curious if we open up the conversation a little bit and if there's any opportunities for marketers that you see today. I mean, there's so much noise, but I was curious if there's any opportunities you think people should be taking more advantage of. Well, just just to hook on on the word noise, it's indeed there is a lot of distraction. There's a lot of noise. I think uh, focusing on the things that matter, focusing on the basics would be, uh, I think a lot of marketers would just simply benefit from that. Just just be feeling confident enough that just focusing on those few very basic things when it comes to our, when it comes to consumer choice will actually really, really help them in, in do a better job. It's, to be honest, I, th- I think the biggest challenge is going to be uh, countering the short-termism. Uh, I think that's one of the, the biggest opportunities in terms of what we, although it's not it's not framed in a positive manner, I, I realize that, but it's I think the biggest opportunity for marketers in terms of them doing a better job and, uh, and us spending, we all spending our money more wisely would be to counter that uh, that trend, but that's going to be a very, very hard one. It's just because we'll need to overcome ignorance, laziness, pride. We'll need to educate. And well, yeah, I'm, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's what drives uh, a lot of these things. I, I suppose uh, education is important. I think it's it's, it's important that people continue are being educated on on some of the things that are in the book as well. But those fundamentals we talked about previously. Uh, I think that that's where there's a very big opportunity for marketing. But again, it's it's something we need to work on very hard to make happen. I always like the notion Andrew Ehrenberg mentioned. Uh, several decades ago, I suppose, when he was talking about advertising. So I know that's only just one part of marketing, but he essentially said, well, advertising is creative publicity. And I think it's a very interesting way of describing it. And then also just, we, we can talk about mental availability, which is in, the words themselves are actually sort of a complicated concept. It doesn't, maybe doesn't really tell you what that means or what, I need, what you need to do. So this is why I really like the idea of creative publicity, because I think a lot of people will intuitively sort of understand what what that could mean. So yeah, I'm, again, I'm, I'm sort of a guy who isn't really on the forefront and trying to propose all new things. I'm, I'm more about repeating the old things. But so the, the, the idea of creative publicity, I feel, is a very, very good idea and, a, and an opportunity for marketers to think about that. I agree. I, and I think a lot of people, we've talked about how brands grow in, the, in that, the book and the concept there. There's a lot of confusion that how can this apply to smaller brands or smaller companies, right, that don't have the big budgets. But when you free phrase what advertising is about in this term of creative publicity, you can get publicity in a lot of different ways. And that's where the leverage is, frankly. No, you, you're absolutely right. I fully agree. And I think we're really sort of milking the cow at cost of maintenance and penetration. So we're really making it harder for ourselves to build profitable scale. But you, it's not necessarily about the biggest budget. It's indeed more about thinking about how can I make sure I'm being noticed? And and, and obviously that's just part of the solution it's it's also making sure that when people remember and notice you it's not going to be really hard to sort of pick you up buy you and you need to offer something as a value that people think is worth it so and those things knit together because um, when do people think something's is worth something well very often because it's pretty well known it's a way of keeping the prices up as well uh, but we're you know we're very often doing exactly the opposite so uh, that's a shame but maybe creative publicity is a is a, is a, is a so interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Well, um, I do love to get to know the person behind the topics we cover. So I love asking this question of all the guests. 
Mon, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Wow. Let's see what I, what I can give you there, Mr. Freud. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good question, I suppose. Um, I think there's a few things that, at least that's at least that's the way I'd like to see it, that have defined who I am or just sort of help explain why I do what I do. So my, my mother, because I can't remember myself very vividly, but she told me that uh, when I was uh, probably about, about three years old, she just saw me walking out the door with a little bike next to me, and she said, um, yeah, you just walked out there. You weren't able to ride the bike. And, um, you know, that's what we do in the Netherlands. We do ride bikes. And she said, you didn't return until you could ride the bike. She said, you know, I just saw you practicing all day, standing, you know, standing on the curb so you would fall over. And then just, you know, I just probably fell on my on my face uh, like a hundred times. But in any way, I didn't return until I could ride the bike. And I apparently just walked in and said to her, I apparently said, no, I can ride the bike now. Sort of, uh, so, um, so just to, to let you know, I, I sort of sorted it out. And Later on, I lived abroad as a as a young kid kid for a couple of years, well, four four and a half years in West Africa, and I I can still remember the people spoke French there. We went to a French school, so I remember my first day in school. I think it was about nine, maybe maybe eight. And uh, my mum just put me in the classroom with a dictionary, like a uh, Dutch French dictionary, and uh, said, "Well, see you in the afternoon, huh?" And uh, I guess it's it's things like that. And, you know, I obviously remember that maybe there's a truckload of stuff that I don't remember. But I think there's just there's a few instances where I just really needed to ha- you know, sort things out for myself by myself. And um, the fact that I've just been working the majority of my career as a self-employed person is probably just maybe stems from that. So it's fine, you know, finding stuff out for myself and uh, not being too worried that it's maybe not what other people think is, is the right thing, but it's sort of the thing I think I need to do. So that's probably one of those, that is probably a thing that drives me, I suppose. Um, and uh, I think my love for science or my interest in science came when I was studying at uni and my teacher was telling me about, or it was just showing the papers where John Philip Jones and, and Andrew Ehrenberg were sort of fighting it out to what extent actually you could increase total category consumption. I think it was about smoking cigarettes uh, in one case, and or it was just merely switching between brands and the extent to which attitude change actually precedes behavior or the other way around. And it was just, that was one of the first times when, when I had just, I think I just had a good tutor as well. It just showed how these guys were just battling it out with words where I was thinking, wow, this is actually quite a, this is actually quite quite interesting and quite good fun, I suppose. So uh, that's probably why I like science. I don't know. Hope that, hope that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does well? Um, what fuels you? What keeps you going personally? Yeah, I think I always admire people that can have almost sort of a laser-like focus on whether it's their career or or, or any sort of interest that they have. I've always been someone who who just likes a lot of things. Uh, I'm a bit like a sort of a sort of a puppy, you know, sort of walks around and everything's interesting. You want to sort of you know, take a look here and take a look there. And and I, I don't mind. It's just, just, I think there's a lot of things that I find very interesting. I'm, I'm really curious about people, what makes them tick, but also really maybe that knits into some of the things we were just talking about uh, what defined me. I think just getting to the bottom of things, I really like to really understand how something fundamentally works. And then also just tell other people about it, sharing that. I think those, those are really things that just keep me motivated to, uh, to maybe to also to a certain extent, just keep on chipping away on trying to tell people in this industry, this marketing industry, what, what makes sense and how they can sort of benefit from it. And uh, I think but this is probably also why I like people like, you know, the Eames couple and, you know, the designers. I think they, they always felt that form should, you know, should form function or function precedes form. 
uh, sorry, uh, function before form. And uh, I think I, what drives me is to tinker with the form so it best serves its function. So in terms of sharing ideas, trying to find interesting, engaging ways of sharing things that I find think are interesting and sort of tinkering with the form. Good. If you were giving advice to your younger self, what would what would you say? <laughs> uh, don't drop physics from your curriculum. <laughs> I, I really wish I was I was more numerate. I'm actually just finding out later on in my career that, that I'm actually not as bad in, with numbers as I actually thought I was. So I dropped stuff like that uh, a bit too early on, I think. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe this sounds corny, but I think I think one of the things I would probably you know, advise, advise my younger self is to have a bit more confidence in myself and uh, you know, just to be careful not to take things too personal too quickly and just really be nice and respectful to people and uh, I think that, that will get you a long way. That's good advice. Well, two more questions for you um, and then we'll wrap up, but just curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of, more on a personal nature, you know, things that you're interested in. Yeah. Well, to be honest, you know, I don't know if this is unusual, but when it comes to brands, I'm, I'm actually partic- not particularly interested in brands, you know, unless they are clients, because you know I'm, I'm trying to help them make more money. So brands are not necessarily some something that I'm sort of very interested in. Um, I want you know, spend too much time thinking about in that sense. So I don't know. Uh, it's interesting what you say about companies or causes. I, I do think um, that you know that there are things that certain companies or, or brands, if you wish. Two that I think are are interesting or, or sort of uh, appeal to me. Uh, there's a, not necessarily because he's Dutch, but there's this Dutch young man who started an initiative called the Ocean Cleanup. I don't know if you heard about it or read about it, but it was actually when he was very young, he was about 13 years old. He had this idea that you know, because of all the you know all the plastic floating around in the oceans, he he came up with an idea. I think it's sort of it makes it special because I think he was quite young when he came up with the idea it was to have inflatable very long inflatable arms that would float on the on the surface of the sea and they would just scrape scrape up a lot of the, the stuff that's, that was floating around and it, it's and uh, i think they even started the thing in, in san francisco i think when they were, so it took a lot of time to develop that's interesting yeah i think i have i want to see i've heard or seen a story about it that's yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really. I think you know the whole the whole idea about leaving you know, leaving this place behind or cleaning up your own messes for the next uh, the next generation is just you know obviously uh, it's hard to disagree with that. But you know in that sense, I think uh, even companies like H and M, which are huge companies, are trying to sort of. Uh, find ways of still doing what they do, but reduce their, whether it's their footprint or uh, you know, improve working conditions and things like that. I think those those things are interesting. Uh, there's another real initiative, which is maybe a bit geeky, but there's this person called Max Roser. He, uh, together with a few people, he's got this project, which is called Our World in Data. And it's a fascinating website. It's really, it's not necessarily about marketing at all. It's, it's more about it's about our world, but then in data. So you know, simple questions that you might have with friends also in terms of, so is inequality actually increasing or decreasing? Or uh, what's the number of, uh, you know, what's the total number of trees in the world? Um, you know, are there more or less democracies in the world compared to 50 years ago? So really there are basic fundamental questions. Is world population actually growing, declining, or is the growth rate actually quite stable? So simple questions like that. But he, he has this fantastic site where you can just really easily look up all these things. And you know, those are actually things that I think are, are interesting to make more sense of the world around us. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. That sounds really... Oh, yeah. 
do that. It's it's really really interesting. So uh, well, I have one last question for you, and and it's kind of a doozy, but I might have a, a hint on where you might go with it. I don't know. What do you think the future of marketing looks like? <laughs> well, if you just well just thinking about the future, uh, you know. As a curious person, I'm, I'm, I am curious to see what new developments in technology obviously will bring us. I think, you know, we've seen some amazing things, at least in my lifetime, but also just look back before that. We as people have been able to do amazing things. So it's so simply from that perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm really just curious to see what, uh, what's, what's going to happen next, essentially. But one of the things I personally am interested in is that is the idea about distraction in this, you know, there's so much distraction. So you, you called it noise and just not necessarily just in marketing, but you know, the, how are we as people, how are we going to go about you know, folk being able to focus uh, in, in this very distracted world? And uh, I'm very, I think it's interesting because as marketers, we've, we've come, come to a point where we're fracking people's attention. You know, there's not much room left to frack our attention, so to speak, and um, uh, and obviously um, this is being raised. Uh, the extent to which you know some of the companies that are already really good at fracking our attention, some of the big social media platforms, whether we should maybe put a halt to that. So it sometimes feels we're sort of reaching a tipping point, and I'd be really interested to see where this ends up in about twenty years' time. And things like, more specifically, in the industry around fraud and privacy are are interesting. I think up till now it seems as if things like GDPR have not yet impacted marketing practices much but i do think that that is going to change but you know who knows maybe not but i'm not a big fan of the way companies collect and treat our personal data uh, but uh, and i think regulation is something uh, is the way forward but we'll see no it, 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 there's a lot in the system to clean up for sure yeah and I, we'll be fine we'll be fine you know we, i think we'll end up in a good place but uh, i'm just really I'm, I'm curious to see where, where, where we'll end up so uh, exciting i'm excited essentially about the future well thanks for coming on the show today appreciate it it was a pleasure uh, alan and uh, again thank you for asking me it's great hi it's alan again marketing today was created and produced by me if you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.